Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to the ADCES podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today, we're discussing the real-life impacts of COVID-19 on inpatient management with Jane Seeley, a program manager and diabetes nurse practitioner at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Wild Cornell Medicine. Jane, welcome to the huddle. Wow, it's so much fun to do this, Kirsten. I've wanted to do this with you for a long time. Oh, and I'm so happy you're doing it. I, too, have wanted to do it with you forever. But I think this is the perfect time for us to do it. And I really appreciate you coming today to talk about really your experiences on the front line, working with people with diabetes in the hospital with COVID-19. So before we get started, I just wanted to give a little bit of a background about you so that our listeners are familiar with you and get to know you. You know, you're from New York, uh, Manhattan, actually, which is what puts you on the front line and and gives you this perspective. And also, you know, I've known you for a long time because you're a very well-known diabetes care and education specialist. You know, you're an active mentor. You have a history of building programs. And, you know, you and I have had a, you know, a lot of fun working on building technology programs here at ADCES. But before we get started, I'd love for people to hear a little bit about you and your background and your professional experience. So I've been working in diabetes care and education almost my entire career. I'm not going to tell you how long that is. <laughs> and I started in a community hospital for 16 years where I actually piloted the national standards for diabetes education, which are still used today. I'm sure they've been updated and developed the diabetes program. And I moved on to work in the big city again, where I was born and bred. I kind of missed um, being in Manhattan again. And I worked in a number of large academic medical centers. For the last 16 years, I've been at New York Presbyterian at the Wild Cornell campus. And I have put together, I think, a very robust inpatient glycemic management program where we do a lot of education and training of the staff and the patients. And we write protocols and policies and bring in a lot of technology and just try to do the best that we can do. And then all of a sudden, I hate to say this, but all hell broke loose (laughs) somewhere in March and we all came to a screeching halt. But at the same time, we had to like recover quickly and think about, wow, look at all these patients coming in with COVID. Lots of them have diabetes. And when they do have diabetes, oh my God, their blood sugars are crazy high. So it became a whole big, all hands on deck. Let's figure this out. and Let's figure it out fast. So I love hearing that you came from a community hospital, went to an academic medical center. So that has to have shaped a little bit of your perspective too. So how has jumping into this though, you alluded to it a little bit already, how really has COVID-19 impacted your practice or the work that you do every day? So not too long into it, they closed the outpatient programs. 
And basically, the patients were encouraged to do virtual visits or stay home, you know, and not go to the emergency room, if at all possible, because really, that was the only place people could get care at the beginning. And we began to have a deluge of patients, like the most unbelievable number of patients. And these were not general floor patients. They were at least stepped down, but the majority of them were ICU. And then sadly, many of these patients wound up on ventilators. So everything that we were doing before was kind of out the window. And we now had to figure out how are we going to take care of so many people and have the staff be able to do a good job because the staff was being shuffled a lot. People were working in different areas than they were used to working. Everyone from ambulatory that no longer had patients coming in was now sent over to inpatients, and many of them hadn't done that in years, if at all. So there was a huge learning curve and getting people to figure out and to train people to get on board to figure out how to do this. And I have to say, I was completely amazed. So many of my endocrinologists that I work with became hospitalists. They had never done that. That was never their plan. And they never complained. And they went in and they got their training and they rolled up their sleeves and they really did a great job. In fact, it came time that we didn't need to have them there so much. They didn't really want to let them go. They wanted to keep working as hospitalists. And the same thing with our fellows. They had to be uh, deployed back into be residents again, which, you know, must be hard for them. It's a very different lifestyle than they were used to, you know, but they all did it and actually volunteered to stay on longer than they had to. So I'm very proud of my team. It sounds amazing. It sounds like you do have a wonderful team. You're, you're lucky. And we're all lucky to have you guys. You know, I wonder, and I think you use this word, this word chaos, um, you know, chaos, <laughs> not enough staff. Right, right. You know, it's, it's scary. But um, how do you work through that chaos? I mean, how do you take a step back? And at what point do you say, okay, this is chaos and I need to take a step back? And how do I make decisions in this environment? So I'm always very hands-on and I always reach out to people to find out, you know, what's hard. And we actually were approached by a hospitalist, which was fantastic, from another site. And he said, we can't accommodate all this. These patients are walking in. They're very insulin resistant. They have really high blood sugars. We can't do all these blood sugars and do all these insulin injections. It's too much with the volume that we have. And also remember the staff was a lot of new people. They were new to the setting they were suddenly in, or they were new to us completely because people thankfully volunteered from all over the country and were coming in droves to help us. University of California, San Francisco sent the whole team of doctors and nurses to help. I mean, I'm amazed by it. It was really amazing. But remember, they had never worked there before and they had to you know, figure out a lot for themselves. So we wanted to try to streamline things and make them as simple and easy as they could be without compromising our patients. And I think that that was a really important task at the beginning. I was working with my um, collaborating physician day and night, literally, and then reaching out to other people to show them what we had worked on to see what they think and get buy-in and going all the way up to senior leadership to, in warp speed time, launch new protocols that would help protect the staff, less exposure, um, less things they had to do, but still provide good care to our patients. And that's really an ethical dilemma in a time like this, to balance those two things. Yeah, I mean, it is a tough place to be in. So you have staff that need to be trained, and then you have your patients that need to be treated. 
So I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but you were comfortable approaching your leadership. Does that come from, you know, the teamwork you have within your team? Um, Does it come from leadership? Does it come from your experience? What empowered you to work with your leadership? That's a great question, actually. So everybody's got their good qualities and their bad qualities, and it's hard to say sometimes what's good and what's bad because it could be sort of a little of both. So for those of you that know me, I do have a big mouth. <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. It could be in a good way, not always. Sarah, <laughs> my sister will tell you, not always. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The point is that I knew certain things had to be done, and I'm really good at navigating the system, and I'm all about process. So I looked into, okay, if I want to change the way we do basal bolus for some patients, and instead, based on certain criteria, I wanted to actually make it half the glucoses and much less insulin injections, get it down to one insulin injection, one pill, and two glucoses a day. I have a way we could do this that I think is safe and there's evidence to support it. How would I make this happen? And so I went to the people I thought could assist me in that. I got their buy-in, chief of endocrine, chair of department of medicine. And I had them then go to the senior leadership all the way to the top to get permission for us to launch this lickety split. One very funny thing I found out was I couldn't call it protocol. Apparently, if I called it a protocol, it took a lot more vetting to get it approved. (laughs) I learned to call it a recommendation and a guideline. Guideline was okay. You could fast track a guideline, but you couldn't fast track a protocol. Had to go to medical board and all kinds of things. I didn't have to do that. (laughs) You live and you learn. I'll tell you, I learned something new every day during this time. Yeah, but that's something, geez, Jane, that is, that's perfect. The recommendations and guidelines over protocol. Because my next question to you when I was listening to you was, Jane, did you develop a protocol for this? So obviously, no, we're going with guidelines and recommendations. Um, (laughs) So so would this be something that you would suggest to fellow diabetes care and education specialists across the country? Would you say this would be a guideline or a recommendation if say, you know, I mean, we think that there's going to be another resurgence of COVID. Right. So that's really important. I work in a wonderful institution and people are always full of good ideas. And it's a place where if you have a good idea, you often can run with it. So early on, someone in the Department of Medicine said, let's create a database. Let's do it in REDCap because that's what we use for research data. Let's find out characteristics of these patients that are coming in for all different kinds of things. So we jumped on that bandwagon and we said, okay, we want to look at diabetes and obesity because those are two morbidities that seem to have worse outcomes. And that was beginning to emerge in the literature as we were thinking about doing this. So we are doing exactly that. And we will then be able to look at these protocols that we put in place and see how safe and effective they were. So I'll be looking at things, for example, uh, we have a protocol that I just mentioned about taking a DPP-4 in the morning and get a blood sugar Mm -hmm. before breakfast. And then at bedtime, get another blood sugar and give a dose of, you know, long-acting basal insulin, in our case, glargine. And that's really simple, but it wouldn't be for all patients. It would be for patients with blood sugars that aren't that high Now, the studies that were done with DPP-4s were mostly with blood sugars um, under 200 or under 180, but there was actually one study 
under 400 that actually had good results. We decided in this crisis that the bar of 180 or 200 was too low. So we decided to try it at 300. But then we're going to monitor what's going to happen. And if it's you know a foolish idea, then we'll see that the blood sugars are too high and we'll revert back to the normal care of basal bolus. No harm, no foul, right? Mm-hmm. So we are going to see how many times people were able to stay on it, how many times at different glucose levels and different renal function and so on, did they have to actually come off of it and go back to the old way or not? So, you know, the data is going to be there and it's going to be very interesting to see how well it worked. It's impressive to hear that you guys started collecting that data so early on. And I love that you're going to be able to publish this into a protocol that maybe then could be shared with others. What drove you, um, this is sort of a side note, but what drove you to start collecting data? Like what clicked in your brain that said, you know what, this is going to be really important? Well, we were driving with our eyes closed, weren't we? Right. I hate to say it, but we've never had this situation before. People coming in that didn't even know they had diabetes or had prediabetes in DKA, and they're type 2s. Mm-hmm. Right. Or not diagnosed yet, but are type 2s. Yeah. People coming in, skyrocketing blood sugars, sky high A1Cs. I mean, everything, all bets were off of everything we knew to be true. So we had to think about how can we try things safely and ongoing evaluation of whether it worked or didn't work is really important when you're dealing with a pandemic that unfortunately might come back in the fall or winter. So we want to be armed with the right ammunition for this war we might be fighting six months from now or less. Right. We want to know what's going to work and what's going to not work. Yeah, six months, 12 months, and, and who knows when it will end. I'm really hoping, though, that you know we will have a vaccine fairly soon. There's so many people working so hard on getting a vaccine, and that will be a game changer, I hope. Well, if there's ever a time, I think you're right. I think that you know the infrastructure's in place to make that happen. Just one final thing, just thinking about your protocol before we, I know we want to talk about CGMs next, but just love the fact that amidst chaos and amidst all of that, you know, your team had the wherewithal to think, okay, let's collect data because that's the only way that we're going to be able to make changes long-term is if we have this data. But let's switch to the CGM because this is one of my most fun stories from you, like within the crisis when you called and said, I've got all these CGMs in my trunk, Kirsten. So let me throw it back to you to talk through. This is a great story. So it actually started with a pharmacist, which is wonderful. I love working collaboratively with other disciplines. A pharmacist said, this is too much for the nurses. They can't do hourly blood sugars with these patients on trips. We have to do something about this. And then someone said, oh, we should get CGM. And the pharmacist also said CGM, which I didn't even know how the pharmacist knew about CGM. This is an inpatient clinical pharmacist, but she did. And so then I heard about it and I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let me think about this. So it took much deliberation, but we all then agreed on one particular device we were going to use because we could do remote monitoring because what I also learned is nurses are very clever. And I am a nurse, so I can say that, right? Right. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. We absolutely come up with the best workarounds. That's what we're famous for, in case you didn't know. So the best workaround that I heard is apparently when patients go for MRIs, they have to keep the IV poles out of the room because of the metal, and they have these long extension cords they use to get it out of the room because of the magnet. Wow. Yeah, so they have these long extension cords. They're like 20 feet long. 
they used them to put the IV drips outside the door of the ICU. So the nurse didn't have to go in to titrate the drip all the time or when the alarms went off or anything that could handle it from outside the room. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the exposure. It's also about the donning and doffing the personal protective equipment. And especially at the beginning, when we did not have enough equipment. Nobody did. Nobody ever anticipated this. So it was really important to conserve, you know, gowns, masks, gloves, right? Right. So then it made sense to me, wait a minute, if the IV pole is outside the room, then the glucose meter should be outside the room. You can't do it with a regular blood glucose meter, but you can do it with a CGM. So that became the plan. And after much discussion and, you know, I have a big mouth, so I contacted FDA. Uh-huh. We had 11 emails back and forth that day with a group of them, plus a phone call, and it was very informative. And I learned a lot about the fact that it was not approved for hospital use, that there has never been enough data to support its use in the ICU, because ICU patients have commonly things like dehydration, rapid fluid changes, they could be on dialysis, they could have hypotension. These are all things that change the um, concentration of glucose in the interstitial fluid, therefore giving you a reading that might be delayed. So the reading you get now could actually be very old news, and now you're going to adjust the drip level. So that's not good. So they did say that they were considering possibly allowing its use you know, during this time that they were working with the companies. And the next thing I know, I get... Um, well, everybody got a press release first from Abbott and later on from Dexcom saying that FDA has decided to enforce something that they can do called enforcement discretion, which means you can do that. It's not approved, but we're not going to pay attention to that. We're going to let it go right now, only during the pandemic. So that's something I'm going to remember. I love that word enforcement discretion. I've never heard of that until like right now, Jane. <laughs> right? The government thing, but FDA uses it in other circumstances. Yeah. But they made it very clear. It's not approved. Uh-huh. Go at your own risk, but do it wisely. And it's only temporary. As soon as the crisis is over, gone. Okay. So you answered the question that was on my mind that was can this continue? You know, especially when you show something, and I'm sure you're collecting data, if you're showing that something works and it works well, why not continue it afterwards? So that's the whole thing about this. The FDA is requesting that we collect data and the data we want to collect is correlation with the usual method, the glucose meter. So after much consideration and spending a lot of time talking to the CGM company that we decided on, I decided that what would be safest in my mind and doable for the nurses, because I can't make it more burdensome, give them more work. The whole point was to save them work, right? Right. would be when the sensor was placed and it it really looked like the nurses were not going to be able to pull it off. Yes, I know patients do it at home. I have patients in there of 70s and 80s doing it by themselves and they're fine. But these nurses are stressed out to begin with. Do not ask them to do something new. I have heard a few hospitals have said that the nurses are doing it. Bless their heart, to use my friend Alabama's expression, (laughs) but it's not happening in New York. Right. I gave that up early on, and I got a whole bunch of people from my division to volunteer to pitch in and do it so that we could cover it anytime. You know, a lot of people Mm -hmm. live in the neighborhood, they could come in and do it. I mean, people were really nice about it. 
So it was a possibility. But for the correlation, when you first put the sensor on, you have a warm-up period where you don't get any data at all. <laughs> so clearly during that time, each hour, you have to actually do a glucose with the meter, right? Right. After that, you can do double checks until they match up close. Because when you first put on a sensor, the correlation is not as good. It's kind of like you're putting the sensor in the body and the body's like, whoa, what's this? And it has to get used to it a little bit. So after a couple of hours, it gets better and better. So we keep doing a correlation with the meter until the sensor reading and the meter reading is at least 20% close, no more than that. And clinically, that's not very significant to be a problem. You know, these people, many of them, especially the ones on ventilators, are in the hospital for days, significant period of time. So it seems like a like an excellent solution. Jane, I do want to bring like tie this all together and say, you know, I love I'm gonna keep going back to your chaos word, you know, from chaos comes these incredible solutions. And I think as I've been listening to you, they're all tied together. You have the staff incredibly giving, incredible hearts, um need training because they've never jumped into something like this. And then you have these two solutions where you have your protocol or no, sorry, not a protocol. It's a recommendation or a guideline. I, I want to also mention one other um, guideline. <laughs> oh, please, please. Yeah. That was very, very helpful. And it also reduced the need for hourly blood sugars and made it simpler and it, it wasn't a drip anymore. So my hero Dr. Guillermo Ampieres, which many of you know him, and he's like the best educator on the planet. He wrote a protocol, believe it or not, I think it was 2004. It was published in Diabetes Care on treating DKA using sub-Q insulin. There it was. And a couple of years ago, we, we stumbled upon it and started to use it for some patients because we do drips, insulin drips, only in the emergency department and in the ICU at Cornell. And sometimes the bed's not available to transfer. So a patient's on a general floor, they go into DKA, and there's no ICU bed. What do you do? So we would use this protocol. So I called Dr. Ampierez up and I said, you know, you wrote this a long time ago. Are you using it? And he's still using it at Emory. I said, well, if you were to change anything, would there be anything you would change? He said, no, I like it just the way it is. So I said, okay, that's good. So now I'm on my way and we developed a protocol. We did make a, a little bit of a modification to it and we made a nice flow chart, which um, he didn't have. And um, it was very well received. So it actually took the heat off the need for the CGM because there was less blood sugars and there was less insulin injections. So it was easier for the nurses. He was going to say, so with this population, and this population is very new to something like this, it was probably easier to train them on, right? You know, it was all things they knew how to do. Now, this one, could this be a solution that you implement long term? Oh, definitely. Definitely want to do this long term. And I hope that okay. the before data is good enough. I might have to lower the bar for the opt-in glucoses. We'll see, because when people didn't stay on it because they, quote, failed on it, we're going to look at what they're glucose levels were. And maybe we could see at what point that changed and people were able to stay on it. Maybe it's 250. Maybe it is 200. I don't know. But we'll find out. Yeah. I mean, I love hearing, you know, you and I had a chance to talk a couple months ago when all of this was happening. And I know 
how hard it was for you, for your entire team. I mean, I heard it in your voice. I saw the pictures. I mean, I know it was hard, but you know, from that chaos came some incredible solutions, which I love the fact that you're, you're sharing it with us. I truly appreciate that. And I know our listeners will appreciate it, but we are getting close to the end of our time. And I wanted to make sure I gave you some, just a couple minutes to share what you would want, you know, like some final thoughts, words of wisdom that you want to leave with people about your experience. I think the most important thing is to work as a team and put your heads together with other disciplines, other you know, services, senior leadership to get their support and really try to come up with a plan that's going to work for your institution because every institution is different. But you got to really think ahead. And if this does come back, we're all going to have to really think about what's the best approach now. So you should already be coming up with that plan. There's going to be a lot of data coming out. I've been asked to review uh, quite a number of papers in the last even week for diabetes journals about people's experiences, and other hospitals are collecting data. I know that hospitals right in my neighborhood here are collecting data. So we're all going to be looking at what can we learn from this so that moving forward, we won't be in such a crisis. It will not be a war zone, you know, if there is a next time around. That's really the key thing, to plan ahead for this. You talked about working with other disciplines and teamwork. And so that has to be another podcast conversation that we have because I'm all about interdisciplinary work. And I think that that's definitely the future of especially the diabetes care and education specialist and where they fit in the care team. So the last thing I wanted to hear from you, Jane, if you could, is, you know, you shared some moments of hope. And I thought that would be just an incredible story to end on. You know, it's amazing. The camaraderie. I mean, I can't even tell you. I got a picture yesterday from two of my former nurse practitioner students, and they wrote it was them together, all donned up with their you know masks and everything, you know, hanging out. And they don't work on the same. They work in two completely different units, two completely different specialties. And they said, "Look at this. COVID brought us together." <laughs> Apparently, they were deployed to one of these new ICUs we built all over. In every nook and cranny, we have another ICU, and uh, they're together. And it's just everybody, you know, working together. And I walk in in the morning, and there's beautiful murals written on the sidewalk entering the hospital uh, with flowers and rainbows and thank yous in these, you know, written in chalk on the sidewalk, very elaborate. And then there's signs up all over the places. We salute you. You know, it's just, it's so invigorating. You know, it's Nurses Week this week. And nurses are getting so much attention right now in such a positive way, you know, that that used to be like after 9-11 with firefighters, you know, where, you know, they were superheroes and they are superheroes. Believe me, they're running into the building that's burning, not me. But, you know, nurses are looked at now as superheroes. It's really so heartwarming to me. And I actually just saw this um, thing from the UK. It was sort of a cartoon and it showed a kid playing with his toys and he had um, Batman and Superman thrown in the garbage and he was holding a little play doll of a nurse. (laughs) Oh, I love that. It's so adorable. That is so, I guess, you know, I loved, I heard you say heartwarming. And I think the word that comes to my mind is inspirational too, especially when you think about a picture of a child that way. That's that's the neatest story. And if I can also say, Jane, happy Nurses Week. Um, oh, yeah. I think all of us can say, 
you know, your contributions are so important and you're really, you're making such a huge difference in people's lives. Thank you. And thank you for being here. And we are going to have you back, you and your pharmacist and your full team for oh, another conversation. going to be a barrel of laughs, trust me. <laughs> it always is. <laughs> All right, Jane. Hey, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today we heard from Jane Seeley, a program manager and diabetes nurse practitioner at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Wild Cornell Medicine. The spread of COVID-19 changed inpatient management overnight. However, Jane showed us that there is a path through the chaos. We learned that by working with leadership, you can find solutions that work for patients and staff be collaborative, work with other disciplines, and always track data. For information, visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash COVID-19. Membership at ADCES gives you access to education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for our clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org forward slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.